Hey ho, let's go. Thank you so much to Lynn Drury. Thank you to Sean Williams for appearing on air with us uh, today here on WHIV. Lynn Drury did another great episode of NOLA Americana, and right now Health is a Human Right is starting right now. WHIVFM.org. This is Health is a Human Right radio show. Protecting people like yourself I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth Tra la 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 A public service announcement with guitar. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV, and I can't hear myself. Oh, there we go. Uh, Chris, I'm going to just, <laughs> we're going to do something unorthodox. I'm going to cut to you real quickly. I forgot we have, we have one quick guest that's coming on real quickly. Maybe if you could just do a minute or two just introducing yourself, and then let me go get the guest. Sure, no problem. So um, I am Dr. Christopher Garnett. I'm a local internal medicine physician and HIV specialist, and um, I'll be on the air to kind of geek out uh, with Dr. Derry trying to talk about some of the latest and greatest things that's going on in HIV care, and then just also making sure to talk about some of the social aspects of making sure that folks uh, become the beneficiaries of some of the science that has been going on. Great. Thank you, Chris. All right. Before we get started, it's really a pleasure to have on a friend of the show, somebody that... uh, uh, comes on to WHIV every once in a while to promote some of her great activities, and that's Zara Zogby. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks and tell for us, me back. what are we doing? We're here. I know you ha- you're having a fundraiser, or? Yes, tomorrow night at Southern Rep Theater, we are having a masquerade for mental health. Right. And this is a fundraiser that's going to benefit both the Loyola Center for Counseling and Education and Care for Creatives at Southern Rep. Got it. So why don't we, uh, I know, <laughs> I just, I ran her back uh, here. So so tell us, I, I know that you, you, you started this amazing project uh, at Loyola. Um, I know that it was, that you started a, an affordable mental health clinic. Maybe we could talk about that for a quick second. Absolutely. So about a year ago, we launched the grand opening of the Loyola Center for Counseling and Education, and we provide sliding scale mental health counseling to individuals, couples, groups, families, and children in play therapy. 
And since we opened, we have been expanding exponentially to meet the demands of, wow. of New Orleans. I bet. And you've been, uh, paid, you, I know that you got uh, the university dedicated some space to y'all uh, mm-hmm. so that you guys were able to kind of create a clinic in a place that was once classrooms. It right? was offices. Um, it was offices. But it, conveniently, it's on the same floor as the graduate counseling classrooms. And Great. what that does is provides built-in supervision for clinical interns who are treating That's uh, awesome. Clients. And so then now you guys have been seeing a fair amount of patients then. Uh, that's great. Absolutely. And are there any statistics you can give us like in the past year, X amount We've of this or that? We've seen about or? a growth in 20% of sessions offered per month. Uh-huh. And we offered nearly 1,000 sessions in our first year. Wow. And we're looking at... Um, if we started with one intern, we're going into the summer. This summer, we're going to have about 10 practicum students. Wow. Congratulations. And that was all your vision, huh? That was um, myself and P- Professor Dr. John Duell. We right. co-founded this clinic. That's yeah. amazing. He's the chair of the department. There. So and if p- people were interested in, in, in getting an appointment or finding out more information... They can um, visit our website or they can call us and we do a free confidential phone consultation. Got it. And uh, and as you're getting that, I also want to uh, take a moment to kind of also remind folks that tomorrow there is a fundraiser. Um, that fundraiser is available. Uh, we'll, uh, oh, yeah. Then also tell us what the – thank you. Then tell us uh, uh, about the program that you started at, uh, at Southern Rep. Because I actually have been hearing about it totally isolated. Like in random conversations, people will be like, hey, do you know what's going on over there? And I'd be like, I know. It's Keep waiting cool. for you to come join us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have Care for Creatives at Southern Rep. It has two tracks. One is our weekly Tuesday night community mixer and healing power hour. That takes place. We close the sanctuary bar and create a sober space. And the first hour at six o'clock is a mixer where you can get healing services like acupuncture, aromatherapy, massage, Reiki, meditation, creative arts, things like that. And the second hour, we circle up and do a big group activity and everyone gets to express themselves. And every month I have a co-facilitator lead a deep dive into something they're um, they specialize in such as yoga or meditation or qigong somatics music therapy things like that you know uh, uh the two of us over here are both uh, experts in hiv and sti care so if ever you're looking for Ooh, you know STI some psychoeducation well, just you know if, you know how to how to look for this how to think about that uh now i'm gonna know. hear from the participants <laughs> that they want to they want to bring you in uh so uh both the two of us uh, chris and i that's that's our level of expertise in fact, when you leave, we will be spending the rest of the hour talking about STIs, HIV, and coronavirus. So, if you, brilliant! If you're tuning tuning in, that's the stuff that you have to look forward to here in a second. So, uh, and then what's the second track that you do at uh, at uh, the, what is it for creatives? It's um, care for creatives. Care, yeah, care for creatives. The second track is we have well being workshops. So, a similar format to our hour healing power hour, but it's more of a ninety minutes, and it's with closed groups that meet for about six weeks at a time, once oh, a week. Wow. And we do these in agencies around town, such as we've done them at the Jewish Community Center at Poitras Home. We have one going on right now at the Cabildo with the Louisiana State Museum Gay Carnival Exhibit. Oh, cool. In conjunction with No Age, our our LGBTQ plus elder group. Right. Yeah, we love No um, Age. Chris, are you familiar with No Age? Mm -hmm. You you know the folks at No Age. Yeah, Yeah, of course. So we just uh, love them and uh, really loved working with them. Super. 
Yeah, yeah, excellent. All right, so uh, tomorrow is Masquerade for Mental Health, a fundraiser benefiting the Loyola Center for Counseling and Education and Care for Creatives. It's from 6.30 to 9.30 tomorrow at Southern Rep at 2541 Bayou Road. Again, that's February 4th, 2020, 6.30 to 9.30. Silent Auction, VIP Healing Lounge, uh, and lots of good stuff. Food by Bogan's King Q. Mm-hmm. And beverages uh, by the Sanctuary Bar, live music by Dat Band. Again, more information uh, can be found at where can they southernrep.com slash masquerade for mental health. That's southernrep.com masquerade for mental health. Anything else that you want to you want to talk about? I just want the community to know that these resources are there for them and to feel open arms with coming in to either Care for Creatives and or the Loyola Center for Counseling and Education. We're here and happy super, to serve. Super. If, if, if tomorrow morning, if, you, if that ends up working out, 10 a.m. is still available if you want to come in and, and plug again. Cool. Alrighty. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. All right. Cool. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And please come anytime. Thank you so much for having me. I love oh, being okay. here. Thank you. And there's a button on the wall on your, on your way out. Okay. Got it. Chris Garnett, it's such a pleasure. <laughs> Glad to be back. Thank you. I, I know you had a busy weekend this weekend. Indeed. And uh, you were just telling me you are the founder for, let's see if I get it right, Queer Eye for Sci-Fi? Yeah, Queer, that Eye, is... Queer Eye for the Sci-Fi. <laughs> uh, That's the Chewbacca's crew? Yes, a Rockus sub-crew of the mothership of Chewbacca's. Yes, we saw the mothership. We saw the mothership go by. Absolutely. So um, we rolled this Saturday. Um, condolences to those people who didn't make it. You missed a marvelous yeah. party. That was a really fun parade. Yeah. So um, my sub crew uh, was founded to provide additional space within the large universe of Chewbacca's for uh, LGBTQ plus individuals and their allies to strut their stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those constant reminders that sci-fi is what you make it and inclusivity is got to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, of uh, course. When you're a nerd, right. you, you kind of you, you must be built um, to accept uh, differences. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, uh, I and I say lovingly, I, I'm not a sci-fi person at all, you know, but uh, uh, my wife and I were down there and, and the whole time I was just in the back of my head was just nerd. <laughs> and I say this lovingly in my in my loving way of how I love all my brothers and sisters that are into sci-fi or what have you. But you do bring up a good point in, in that I do, you know, growing up uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, TV was limited and Star Trek was on TV all the time. And, you know, you can't help, you know, say what you will about the first series of Star Trek. But boy, was there a incredibly diverse crew on, on Star Trek, right. you know, in a time where that just didn't even didn't even exist, and in fact, if I even have my statistics right, I think the first interracial kiss on TV actually happened on Star Trek. That's so, right. so would you say that there is a history of inclusivity in in the sci-fi world, or? Well, sci-fi is just not a monolith. It's just part of our entertainment culture uh, where, you know, a lot of voices of diverse communities don't always get their stuff produced. I just think that now in the golden age of TV, um, a lot of folks of diverse backgrounds are finally getting their material produced. Yeah, 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 yeah that's really true. And so what was the theme? What, what did you guys do? So, or even before you do that, yeah, take me back. How did you come up with it? And even better than that, tell me how you came up with the great name. 
Um, so one of our ally friends, uh, she became our naming maven. You know, uh-huh. um, so we had all kinds of different things we were batting around. But queer for the sci-fi, it was just magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we knew we knew that one was going <laughs> to stick. Uh, and it, basically, it just arose out of an understanding that as soon as you put sequins and fringe <laughs> on a Darth Vader. <laughs> It's now something transgressive and and different, and so yeah, we could probably march with all of the you know straight laced uh, Darth Vader's, uh, right. but we really I don't know we have fun together, um, and uh, yeah. So this weekend we also had um, NPR National come down and do a very loving story about Chewbacca. I heard, yeah, I heard, I heard about that. Did you get a chance to listen to the the piece or the package? Well, um, my my alter ego, Rainbow Buffett, uh, is just uh, just on that web page now, the NPR. And I just, I, I'm I'm so tickled that my my national profile is actually higher for uh, my my sequined uh, Star Wars character more than any of the work that I do professionally. All the nine to five, uh, yeah. the bug stomping work that you do. Yeah. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and, and just and curious, uh, how did they portray the either the the parade in general and or the, the subcrew that that you started, the queer eye for the sci fi? I, I mean, I think it was just a understanding of ten years of Chewbacca and how much it's grown. Uh, I mean, an organization like that, you know, there's over a hundred different sub crews. Yeah, it's, um, and so, then also crews from other parts of the country. Yeah, I that that's the part that kind of surprised me more than anything else. I mean, one is that I'm just stunned on how it grows every year. But yeah. more than that was all the marching bands from different parts of the country, which were stunning to me. Yeah, yeah. And the fun thing is just you get a diversity of perspectives. So, like, um, of course, my subcrew has to have a U equals U uh, yeah. throw. We'll get to that. So, so what was that? Tell me about this. It just makes sense. No, no, no. Did you make throws or did you have yeah. them produced or what, what, what were they? So, I mean, the whole concept of Chewbacca is handmade throws. Okay, of course. So, um, uh, you know, you're just going to get um, a representation of each group. And, of course, a group like us. It's important, you know, to to share the message undetectable equals untransmittable. Yes. And what we're, of course, talking about is HIV. And we will be talking much more about this as the hour progresses. And and, uh, and if, if I can, just remind listeners that when your HIV viral load is undetectable, and this is something that we actually measure in the clinic, when that viral load is undetectable, people living with HIV actually do not transmit HIV to their intimate partners. And we're talking about condomless sex. And we're talking about partners as well that... Um, um, are uh, not taking prep uh, as well, and we'll talk about this in a second. I definitely want to let's just kind of tee it up right now, but mm-hmm. also talk about U equals U, in the, and we'll we'll get to it in a second because I definitely want to jump into coronavirus. But U equals U in the setting of uh, uh, IV drug users, and U equals U in the setting of uh, breastfeeding moms as well. But we'll 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 cue that up and tease that. And we'll uh, Chris and I will come back around to that in just a moment. But if you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. 
This is Nola Matters. Health is a human right. My name is Mark Allendary, and it's an honor and a pleasure to have with me my very good friend uh, and colleague, uh, Dr. Chris Garnett, who's an internist here in town uh, and also uh, a uh, an internist who specializes and works uh, mostly with the HIV uh, uh, community, both in treatment and prevention, and that prevention is called PrEP, and we'll, we'll get around to that in, uh, in just a moment. Can you tell me what the throws were that you threw? Yeah, so um, we we sacrificed um, some young uh, pink Wookies <laughs> to make some really shaggy, furry um, bandolier blocks because uh-huh. uh, that's the signature throw, right? So Muses has their shoes, Nyx has their purses, Chewbacca has the sash that Chewbacca uh, wears. Is that what that's, that's called? The band, the thing that, that uh, those boxes, those are called bandolier boxes? Blocks. Blocks, blocks bandolier and, blocks. Uh-huh. And it fits on a bandolier uh, that you put that's on. That's kind of the sash or yeah, something? Yeah, the sash, or, right? right. So um, kind of like in the Pokemon tradition, you try to catch as many different blocks from as many of the 100 plus sub crews of Chewbacca. Got it. And uh, ours was a uh, shock of pink fur with uh-huh. um, rhinestones that uh-huh. said Queer Eye for the Sci-Fi. Uh-huh. Um, and then what was the U equals U message? Oh, uh, so we had that on a pin. Oh, cool. Um, you know, that the elegant, simple U equals U. Right. Uh, linking to the uh, um, the campaign website right. for U equals U. Um, and, uh, you know, we always have the, the glittered out ray gun, which is, <laughs> yeah, glitter is the, the herpes of the, uh, crafting community. Yes. Yes. I keep hearing that all the time. And I, I say, unlike herpes, there's no, uh, there's no treatment for glitter. So, <laughs> um, or like I always say, unlike, uh, unlike love, uh, herpes, and glitter will last forever. <laughs> it will. Yeah, when we sell our house, um, they will have known that we were. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and not just because of all the cyclovir bottles sitting around. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. On to more serious stuff. Okay, so the, the topics that we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be talking a little bit about coronavirus. Uh, I know that this has been something that people have been talking about. Um, and then kind of getting into some of the HIV stuff, uh, including some recent cool experiences I've had uh, actually going out to Gilead, uh, just the largest pharmaceutical maker uh, of HIV and hep C medications. Are you, do you, are you doing any hep C stuff by any chance? Um, right now, that isn't something that comes my way. Got it. But um, it's gotten so much easier now. Oh, dude. <laughs> dude, one pill once a day. I know. Have you been following the state? The what the state? So, well, that makes it very easy. The formulary is one medicine, and it's covered yeah. for almost anybody. Yeah. So, so now anybody who's got hep, hep, hepatitis C and has an active viral load. So beyond just having positive antibodies, so hepatitis C with an active viral load. And if you go to your primary care doc, they can certainly walk you through this. Uh, but the state of Louisiana is actually treating uh, and and curing uh, everybody for about five years. And again, uh, they uh, and we've talked about this on WHIV, including this show several times, uh, which is if you have hepatitis C, uh, the state has bought five years worth of medications again from Gilead. Uh, and, uh, and that medication is called Epclusa. It's a 12 week treatment with cure rates of like 95, 96%. I've had several 
failures, but they were all uh, genotype like 3B. Mm-hmm. So there's an inherent resistant. And I just did the second treatment and I was able to get them all cured. So right now I've yeah. 100% curate of all my patients that I've treated. Um, again, it's a 12-week treatment uh, and uh, and it treats all cases of hepatitis C yeah. from F0 to F4. So, uh, so we strongly encourage everybody uh, to either go get tested. If you're a baby boomer, you need to know what your hep C status is. Uh, and if you are positive, please get test get please get treated and if you're not a baby boomer uh please get tested anyway because the medications are here it's five years worth of medications they're free uh especially Mm -hmm. if you have medicaid uh as well so um so yeah another i think another little plug is um a lot of my patients that i um help with uh, comprehensive sexual health services don't know that um hep c is uh a sexually transmitted infection and um, a lot of times uh, they'll have a provider, a healthcare provider, that hasn't uh, checked, although, you know, they got their HIV test. Um, and so it's, it's good. It's just good to have that conversation about if you're considering an HIV test and you haven't had a hep C test in many years, um, make sure to ask your provider about it because I feel maybe in this state um, there may be providers who are, it's not even on their radar. Right. Right. Unfortunately, yeah, that that is the case. So uh, I think that's a great piece of advice there from Chris. So as we quickly just kind of turn to uh, the globe, uh, I think I read this morning, um, I think 17,000, and I'm sure it's probably gone up since I've read about it this morning, 17,000 cases of the Wuhan uh, virus. So what we're talking about is a what's referred to as a novel coronavirus. So in other words, it's a new virus that's not been seen in humans in the past. It is related to the previous SARS virus that we saw in 2002-2003. And SARS stood for, uh, I think, Systemic Acute Respiratory Syndrome. I think Systemic I think I forget what uh, systemic acute respiratory syndrome is what SARS stood for. And then there's another virus called MERS, uh, which is pretty much limited to the Middle East. And MERS yeah. stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And the reason is, is that in the MERS uh, virus, it's somewhat limited human to human transmission, but very effective camel to human transmission, whereas the SARS virus was very, um, very virulent. And thankfully, this is a a law of viruses that we enjoy so far, and that is the more virulent, in other words, more the more yeah. deadly an organism, right. um, the less transmissible it is. And thankfully, that's just a law of the universe, and it doesn't change, right? In other words, and the flip side is true, the more transmissible a virus is... Fortunately, the less virulent it is, because the worst case scenario is a virus or an an organism that is both highly transmissible and highly virulent. When we get to that point, uh, that that will be a very difficult uh, uh, time and uh, hopefully something that we won't need, ever need to consider, you know. Um, mm. But any any thought, I mean, have you, how long, have you been following this? I mean, the first case apparently was first described in December 30th uh, in 2019 uh, or maybe even December 31st. I think they said it was the last day of the year. Uh, so December 31st. And then I just, I kind of remember yeah. reading a blip. I was uh, on holiday with my wife and I right. was just checking 
checking my phone and I was slowly following. I'm like, there's no way there's another coronavirus coming out of, out of China. Yeah. And, uh, and about a week and a half ago, there was a couple dozen cases and yeah. now we're at 17,000 cases. Yeah. And, uh, I, did you have a chance to look at the, um, the New England Journal or the Lancet articles at all or? No, so I'm just catching what's uh, being covered in the lay press, but right. uh, one of the more interesting things was, I think, what you had mentioned earlier today, that um, folks are looking at some of the proteins as they're trying to sequence this new virus right. in more detail, and um, they're seeing some protein signatures that look familiar uh, to other viruses that we know. Right. Um, so so that's one of the angles I know. Um, and, and, the, uh, and in particular... So, what we're talking about is HIV, right? Right, right. right. So um, there's there's some interesting things going on there in terms of um, public perception right now um, being driven so much by social media. I thought one of the interesting things was um, at least one article I saw published from a group out of India. Um, they ended up saying it looked a lot like an HIV protein um, that's in this coronavirus, and they're they're different viruses. Um, it created such a stir, and it got so much out of the hands of these researchers. Um, conspiracy theories abounded about how this seems like it was an engineered virus, and uh, it looks to be that this group, um, seeing how their paper has gotten hijacked, um, pulled it down uh, from uh, publication. Um, and, and not because of the that there was the information was incorrect. It was just because it was just the the uh, uh, the res- talk about it or yeah. the uh, the resemblance of something uh, engineered. Oh, I see. As, Got it. Engineered. Right? Yeah, not, not the HIV connection then. It right. was the potential engineered. Right. 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 Yeah. Which was not at all what um, they were saying. And right. um, they're clear to say, look, this is protein sign. Like this is analysis of data and we could be wrong and it could be that this protein looked at by a different group would be interpreted to actually be something else molecularly um, but they just didn't expect that the the voracious news cycle that's going on with this uh it would just take off like right, that right, uh, and right. spin off um uh i guess a social media you know uh, conspiracy Frenzy? campaign. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So let's just be clear about a couple things. Viruses are not made in the lab. Uh, that stuff just doesn't exist. They're not transmitted like that. They that don't sh- need help. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nature I just, finds I just a way. Chris right there. <laughs> no, yeah, they don't, they don't need help. They're very sloppy right. reproducers. Right. And uh, they're also RNA viruses. And, and hey, Mark Allen or Dr. Derry, what does that mean, an RNA virus? That means when they reproduce, they make a lot of errors in reproduction. Now, if that were human beings, that would be a disaster. But we're DNA organisms, and our, when we reproduce, our, our DNA or our genetic material is replicated almost exactly. And if not, there's these proofreaders that go through and fix the errors. Whereas RNA viruses are designed purposely, or I don't know if they're designed. I often feel it's just either it's an advantage evolutionary. <laughs> so sometimes I say they're designed purposely, but it's hard to say. Yeah, uh, they certainly take advantage of the fact that yeah. um, that these viruses, when they replicate, they replicate in such a sloppy way. They still remain a virus, 
But when we say that they're sloppy replicators, what it essentially means is that it, it evades the detection of the immune system. It's kind of the reason why you, not kind of the reason, it is the reason why you have to get a flu shot every year because the flu changes in a way uh, and, re- and replicates in a way uh, that uh, last year's uh, immunity for the flu will not protect you against this year's uh, immunity for, for the flu. So, uh, so let's just kind of get that that conspiracy theory mm-hmm. kind of idea debunked and recognize that that's just there's just no right. science there's no truth behind it and i know some people like to think that this is you know you know and, and it's dangerous thinking and right. when you propagate that sort of thinking and right. you go online and you talk about these sorts of things you you're hurting other people for whom may actually believe you uh, uh and and believe some of the things that you're saying uh and and of course there's no greater uh uh example of this than the anti-vaxxing uh, yeah. uh community uh that has spread uh, lies and uh mis mis misstatements uh and and basically just are making stuff up uh uh because it's sounds good or because they feel as though it's, you know, it should yeah. be true or what have you. Democratization doesn't always produce great results um, when you apply it to every facet of culture. And when it comes to science, um, it can be a little troublesome um, to kind of crowdsource point. your answer. Good point. Um, it's, uh, you know, in the clinic, I, I, you know, I'll come up with someone who doesn't believe in vaccines. It happens. Um but um, I think what's remarkable to me is um, when you don't have your hand washing uh, technique down. I mean, if you're not going to believe in vaccines, you have to be at least meticulous about something. Sure. Um, so I, that is my parting shot is, um, you know, if I'm not convincing about, you know, getting vaccinated for flu, which right. in Louisiana itself killed 1,500 people just last year. Right. I mean, coronavirus, I hope, won't even come close to killing a single person in the U.S. But let's talk about clear and present dangers um, from the virus community. And uh, I mean, as soon as you touch, um, uh, you know, your cart at Rouse's and then you come back home, not picking on Rouse's, just the grocery store in general. I mean, most viruses can live, you know, for like hours on end on surfaces. As soon as you bring it into your car, bingo, bongo, you brought it home. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. Absolutely. Hand washing is is incredibly important. Like I always remind people that the two, um, that that human beings, uh, when left in the wild, are meant to only live to 40 or 50 years old. But uh, the two uh, entities that have increased the lifespan of humanity have been, one, clean water, two, vaccines. That's it. Sanitation, vaccines. Now, along the edges, you can say, well, you know, seatbelts and this, that, or whatever. But uh, we can't underestimate the importance of vaccines uh, in this case as well. But real quick, station ID, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Health as a Human Right in All Matters. My name is Dr. Derry. With me today is Dr. Chris Garnett, who's uh, an extraordinary internist here in the community with a focus on HIV treatment and prevention. So just a couple more points I just wanted to bring up about coronavirus is because I think it's really fascinating um, in that the, the New England Journal, uh, article that came out so there was two big articles I think last week that came out one was the Lancet article that looked about 40 or 50 patients that were in the in that hospital in the hospital they actually just created a corona hospital coronavirus hospital in China ground. yeah they just <laughs> built it right up um, and uh, it probably looks like what the Ebola treatment centers basically look like uh, and how quickly we were able to get those things up as well but the um, 
a couple things. One is that um, is a, at least in the first study of clinical studies was that it affected folks that the mean mean age was around forty nine. There was more men that were involved, uh, and then there was this ten year old boy, and that's kind of where the story I think starts. This ten year old boy was uh, exposed uh, to virus from his parents. Uh, he uh, uh, was asymptomatic, completely asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. The parents still asked that the uh, doctors evaluate the the boy. They swabbed him. They collected samples. Sure enough, had a very very high viral load. They ended up scanning his lungs, and he ended up having a fair amount of infiltrative uh, uh, effusions mm-hmm. on his chest X-ray, but still asymptomatic. In other words, yeah. he had what looked like symptoms of a pneumonia. He had virus, but he was not responding uh, to it. So, of course, this now then start to beg the question of, can you get asymptomatic yeah. uh, transmission of the virus? Yeah. So the New England article that just came out two days after that showed, yes, you can. And it was this fascinating story about this woman who uh, lives in China. She does not live in Wuhan. She lives outside of Wuhan, far outside of Wuhan. She's a businesswoman, and she works at a auto uh, parts distributing, right? So uh, her parents come in. They live in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. Her parents come in from Wuhan, spend the weekend with her. Right. Um, they they leave on Sunday or Monday, and the patient, or index case number one, what they're referring to as index case number one, uh, flies uh, from China to Germany to go to a... Uh, a, a company uh, business meeting, okay? So she gets to the company business meeting and uh, um, stays for three days and uh, gets on the airplane. On the way back home, she develops severe symptoms. As soon as she gets uh, into China, she goes straight to a hospital. She tests positive. She does fine. She lives, but she does fine. They, she calls the company, goes back, and they start contact tracing. Right. And what they find is two other people who were also positive who had somewhat contact with her, staying in the same room, not necessarily close contact. And both of them actually, um, uh, index uh, patient number one also had contact with patient number three and patient number four before he became symptomatic. Right. He had very limited contact with patient three and patient four, and patient three and patient four went on to have uh, mm-hmm. disease as well. Back to patient number one. Patient number one has limited contact with patient three and four, uh, asymptomatic, develops a very mild influenza-like illness. At that point, did not realize that the index case was positive for Wuhan. It wasn't until after mm-hmm. he developed his small influenza-like illness, he then finds out that he had Wuhan. They go, they uh, or this novel coronavirus, they go and they swab him, they collect samples. He has a huge viral load. Yeah. So not only are you able to transmit before the illness that the idea is that then you'll also be able to transmit after, and we don't know how long right. uh, afterwards as well. Yeah. And it's that asymptomatic nature of this virus, I think that is what we are going to see, and this is why we've seen this explosion in right. cases. Right, um, And, you know, thankfully, uh, there hasn't been a lot of discussion, like you said, about how uh, aggressive it is. Um, I mean, most of the things 2% that I've been mortality so far, I is, think. You know, folks who are uh, older and then, you know, maybe some of their other chronic medical conditions kind of combining to, to, you know, accentuate how sick they get. Um, but, I mean, it just it reminds us all that, um, you know, get your vaccine for the virus uh, yes. that we know, right? So uh, influenza, um, you know, my understanding is similar that, you know, you can be spreading it before you become symptomatic. And so for those folks who feel like, oh, I'll just, you know, take my chances and if I get sick, I'll just, you know, not be around people. 
uh, a little yeah. too late. Yeah. Um, you know, because uh, there is such a thing. It's not unique to, to, to this virus, but we have to learn it because this is right. novel, right? Right. Uh, if we're ever going to fight this because, you know, it has a season I am, and it will come back, we need to know how it works. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, that that's super important. Um, and uh, when it comes to, you know, like just basic principles here, I mean, I don't think – I don't want people to freak out. Um, uh, Some of the same principles apply here uh, as far as, you know, uh, general hygiene. (laughs) It's just it's super important. Sure. Um, And then making sure that um, our institutions um, like the CDC that are working day and night to track this down, that um, we don't let, um, you know, current administration or other administrations continue to slash the budget of the CDC. Um, that's not going to help us. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, because it takes so many hours, right? Like that that beautiful cascade that you just described of all of these people getting interviewed, um, that's not done, um, you know, by telephone right. call. Right, it's not done by robots. Boots on the ground. <laughs> right, it's you know? done by people, actually. That's not cheap. Yeah, the uh, I, I think the Lancet article had um and, th- and this was the the Lancet article was actually done by uh, uh they were all Chinese authors. Mm-hmm. I think thirty five authors. Yeah, <laughs> just to give an idea of how many people it took just right. to be able to coordinate something right. like that. And uh, the most recent uh, director of the CDC has politely uh, been interviewed already, saying. You've sliced the the budget of the CDC now, what, like three times. Right. You can't keep doing it. Right, right, um, right. And um, I think it's opportune that those interviews are happening now. Yes. As we're having this discussion about, um, you know, how are we going to respond in the U.S.? Right. It's Iowa caucuses tonight. Right. <laughs> and debate on Friday night. <laughs> right. You know, humans, we congregate. It's a normal thing we do. <laughs> I wonder if this is going to come up tomorrow night in the, uh, in the State of the Union. That'll be, uh, that'll be interesting if there's any acknowledgement of this. Because I think everybody's referring to it as an epidemic, as a pandemic at this point. Yeah. Um, and the difference between an epidemic and pandemic, an epidemic is the number of cases um, a- above a baseline, of which, of course, there was no baseline. So by definition, it becomes an epidemic. And then pandemic means, I think, if it's transmitted to more than a handful of countries, I forget yeah. what the exact definition is, two yeah. countries or three three countries, which defines it as a, as a pandemic. Um, as we just kind of quickly segue into HIV, you, you had mentioned that there were some HIV medications that were actually utilized mm-hmm. uh, to uh, actually treat. There's, there was uh, uh, a hospital in Wuhan that actually claimed uh, some cures of five cases within 48 hours. I have a very hard time believing that. We're having a hard time getting our right. hands on data, right. but just, just, just it's, it's still fascinating. Um, that the uh, medication that they're using, as you were starting, as you had implied at the beginning of this conversation, was uh, lipinavir with ritonavir, and together that's co-formulated as a medication called Kalitra, which was one of the very early HIV medications that is not used anymore. Uh, certainly, when I first started doing HIV, it was I would say about a quarter to uh, certainly a third of my patients were all on yeah. Kalitra. Yeah. Uh, but did you ever use Kalitra? 
Um, I continued it in patients uh, and then uh, got rid face, of it. Face it out. As... Um, but yeah, it kind of seems like uh, a little bit of the kitchen sink approach um, right. to trying to fight uh, a new virus, right. which I mean, we we know that medication. So I mean, I don't think it's unethical. Um, right. It's not it's not well, the, dangerous. the other thing too is that is that I think that viruses all work on the same principle, right? They get in, uh, they get into the cytoplasm, they they look for the nucleus. Once they get into the nucleus, they insert themselves into. I mean, it, this virus is going to have to do a. Uh, um, it's going to. Uh, there's going to be a reverse transcriptase element involved in it, right? So it's going to have to flip over to DNA, right, to insert itself into the DNA of the host. So one of the things is, I mean, we know they're both RNA viruses, but as I read about folks not disagreeing on the sequence of the proteins, it seems very bold to start trying to take down some of its machinery. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. Um, but I mean, again, I'm but not. But that's how AZT it's first. Epidemic. That's it's how epidemic AZT was time. first. You know how AZT first started, right? What's it the, was it was oncology. I got I yeah. got taught HIV when I went to medical school in the yeah. early nineties. It was oncologists that taught HIV. There was really no infectious disease doctors yeah. to speak of, and it was just basically oncologists went to this old chemotherapy drug, which right. was AZT. Of course, they were giving it in like sixteen hundred milligrams every like four hours or yeah. something. Yeah. You know, it was destroying people's bone marrow system. Right. Uh, but uh, but that yeah, you know, oftentimes, and then I always joke, of course, that uh, what is it? Interferon is a drug looking for uh is it interferon condition or, or right in a ribavirin ribavirin yeah it's ribavirin that's looking for it's a drug looking for condition to uh, to treat so but as we segue into hiv we got about 20 minutes left yeah. um lots of stuff to talk about hiv lots of exciting stuff we already started talking about i guess let's start with u equals you so um we started talking about u equals you so this is again um uh, an incredibly uh, uh an amazing new messaging uh, that has come out in the in the hiv world if you're listening to whiv i hope at one point or another you've heard of u equals you uh i i know of no other radio station that talks about u equals you more than mm-hmm. whiv and again uh, essentially what that means is that people living with hiv uh, uh, who have undetectable viral loads because they're taking their uh, medicine daily, following up with their HIV providers. They're, um, when they become undetectable, uh, essentially they do not transmit HIV to their intimate or their sexual partners. Um, and of course, Chris was talking about uh, passing out uh, awesome uh, throws. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next time, I would hope that you bring a throw here to your brother. <laughs> you <laughs> equals your throw to your brother. Uh, but uh, that's another conversation to have. Um, the, uh, but we, I started to ask a bit about uh, uh, IV drug users. And breastfeeding moms. And so I know that at the IAS um, yeah. that I did read. No, I saw an interview. And I can't remember her name, but she's one of the U equals U leaders. And uh, um, I don't, yeah. did you show me that video? I don't know if it was Dorian. No. Maybe it was Dorian that showed me the video. I, yeah, I don't did think. You, it, was a, it was kind of like a problematic discussion from that conference. Uh, my recollection was that they weren't ready to expand the U equals U message to breastfeeding. Did you? No, not breastfeeding, but it was for IV drug users. Uh-huh. So did you see that where she kind of just came straight out and said, yes, U equals U uh, applies to IV drug users? I didn't, but that's exciting. Yeah, so I, in my lectures now, I've now been kind of adding not only are, are, uh, does U equals U apply to, um, mm-hmm. uh, to sexual partners or intimate partners, but we now recognize, um, we think, and I usually have a caveat that sure. it applies to IV drug users. But let's be very, very clear. 
not to breastfeeding moms. If yeah. you are a mother, and even though you're undetectable, um, uh, it's formula for right now. Uh, and and I and I speculate, and I would love your feedback on that. Is it because there's just a high density of virus in breast tissue? Is is that what we think, or do we, do we know why there is we can't claim U equals U for breast milk? I can't speak to like again what like what the actual mechanistic argument's going to be um but I think it also is important to just talk a little bit about messaging um because um you know uh people are going to make the decisions that they're going to make when you present them with the information um I guess that's just kind of like an answer non-answer uh I I don't know how many folks um I have in clinic where um you mention uh formula only um, where that's that's the ultimate decision that they want to make. Um, I feel like um, we want we want to get to the scientific answer, though, right? Sure. To, to to be able to say well, it's 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 not um, you know U equals U, but it's probably going to be close. I hope we can say. Have you ever have you ever had a a, a, a uh, have you ever known some a, a mom to breastfeed who is uh, even though she was undetectable? So I think one of the interesting presentations um, that came out of the IAS Mexico City um, uh, conference was differences of perspective, how you approach a mother um, who hmm. decides that they are going to breastfeed anyway. Um, and you so you have a diversity of approaches where one is uh, to support the mother anyway, um, and another approach is to call Child Protective Services. Um, and a you know, try to find some sort of middle ground. I, I would definitely be in the supportive group, but yeah. with a lot of concern. And, and, you know, and that begs the, can you give a child prep to, <laughs> in a weird, like, is, if that's something that's ever been, you know, have a mom breastfeed, but then, you know, uh, also do some, you know, infantile or pediatric or neonatal version of prep, or am I just way out on the? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the middle way is got to be important um, because you are going to have, um, you know, uh, some women who choose uh, that zero risk is not their goal and breastfeeding is um, something that they're going to do anyway. And yeah, I mean, I have to think there probably are some institutions uh, in this country that would call child protective services. Yeah. And I just think that that's the nuclear option um, where you're not going to see that mother again for well, any of kind of help. Right. Um, which is not really what you want to do. No. Yeah. And I, yeah, it, that, you know, if, if I had a mom that was interested in doing that, I would definitely be calling that child's pediatrician mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, and assuming that they'd be looped into that conversation uh, as well. But I know that for me that um, when I have had pregnant moms, I usually, um, I usually will transfer them over to a high risk mm -hmm. uh, OB. Uh, and they, they usually don't come back to me until about three months or four months after they've delivered. So usually a lot of those conversations um, have happened um, already. And uh, so I've never actually really faced that. Uh, but that, yeah. that's, a, that's a fascinating, fascinating story. And again, I'm interested to see kind of how that kind of resolves itself because obviously – uh, you know, especially when we're talking about the uh, developing world, uh, breastfeeding right. is incredibly important. And in parts of the world that have you know such high rates of HIV, I think that it's super important for us to uh, to provide breastfeeding as an option for for moms, even though uh, they're undetectable. 
And just to have people live full lives, uh, life doesn't end after an HIV diagnosis. And um, to be able to say with data all the different ways that you can still, um, you know, live a life um, as plainly uh, as you want, uh, I think is the goal. Um, But yeah, the science um, definitely has to kind of catch up before we can do that kind of full-throated endorsement. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Nola Matters. Health is a human right. My name is Dr. Derry, uh, and I'm an infectious disease doctor, and I'm talking here to my colleague, Dr. Chris Garnett, who is an internist uh, with expertise uh, in uh, both HIV treatment and prevention. And we're spending the hour today uh, uh, chatting a bit about coronavirus, uh, HIV, and we started the hour talking about his most excellent group that he started, uh, Queer Eye for the Sci-Fi. If people wanted to join Queer Eye for the Sci-Fi, how would they do that? Absolutely. Um, so on social media, you could follow us on Instagram, uh, Queer Eye uh, Sci-Fi. And then you can find us on Facebook um, at Queer Eye for the Sci-Fi. And if you don't like Mark Zuckerberg, um, you can just email us, <laughs> uh, Queer Eye Sci-Fi at gmail.com. Got it. Uh, it. That took me a second because I forgot that Instagram is also owned by... Uh, the giant conglomerate yeah, yeah, of Zucks. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, anything with prep? I mean, obviously, since last time we talked, Discovery's right. now been approved, but That's go ahead. Right. Yeah. yeah, so actually, you know, um, I was really interested to just um, uh, read a little bit to see if uh, Islatravir, um, which is one of the new HIV medications... Um, that's being considered as a medication for PrEP, so pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, in a implant. Um, right, I saw that. That was that's like a real little, hot to me. Yeah, like the little bar implant. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. The I saw it. Uh, IAS. I think they. I think it was IAS. They showed safety data. I think right. So the first time I saw it, and I'm going to forget where I first saw it. Um, it was just kind of um, preliminary. And so it was just kind of like um, late breaking. Um, we haven't fully enrolled um, for this study, um, but it looks promising. And so a lot of us um, who saw the early presentation were like, oh, that's nice, but we're not going to really talk amongst ourselves <laughs> because it was it was still like very raw data. Um, but uh, as I was looking at some of the presentations from IAS uh, Mexico City, it really looks like they actually did um, a, a more complete uh, presentation. So uh, Islatravir is one of the uh, NRTTIs, so trans... Uh, so translocation and transcription both blocking. Um, so it's a, n- a newer class. And um, they actually have enrolled uh, a double-blinded placebo trial. Um, they have two different uh, treatment arms for two different concentrations in an implant. They intended to go ahead and take the implants out um, at three months. They did this with healthy volunteers, uh, people not living with HIV. They just wanted to see um, uh, a little bit of, you know, how long the medication um, stays in the body. Um, And because that medicine's already being used in treatment studies, um, it's it's not like it's an unknown medication. agent in terms of how it interacts with the HIV virus, uh, how well it is uh, uh, at effective. So we know, like they're, they're saying the buzzwords for Islatravir already, you know, high barrier to resistance and potent. So those are our wonderful buzzwords um, when we want something that's going to be effective. So it's all that. 
And then when they put it in this implant... And it goes into kind of under, it, the, skin. under the skin, just like you would have it for like a birth control uh, right. implant, right? Popular okay. birth control brand name like Implanon or Nexplanon, um, which um, you know some cisgender females may have experience with. Um, so the the lower concentration at three months uh, definitely met their threshold um, for protection, and so of course they have to do some modeling to uh, determine what threshold they believe will be protective against um, uh, coming in contact with HIV sexually uh, and um, that exposure contact, you know, breaking through to infection. So, And that was done with kind of, was the other arm looking at Descovy or Tenof or Truvada? Um, so it was... To determine uh, that, that potency of it? When they were actually trying to, so that's a whole other area of research that um, that I haven't uh, haven't looked into. Okay, so this is so this is still sa- This is still basically looking at safety, then, right? Um, it's actually looking, yeah. So I mean, it's looking at safety and also the the, the kinetics, right? So right. The, um, and so the interesting thing was the the higher concentration, um, even though they took out um, the implants for everyone at three months, uh, their modeling showed that the concentration was showing no signs of leveling off for the higher concentration. And they model that that's going to go all the way out to 12 months. The tolerability... Hold, hold on, just to make sure I understand what you're saying. Did you say that if you have something in at three months, at the higher concentration, they take it out after three months, that the effects continue for another... What, like a eight, tail? Eight, no. Okay, you no said tail. That, Okay, um, when you said twelve months, I thought that you were saying it continues onward. No, no, no. So that's one of it. the that's one of the things that makes um, the implants um, more, you know, appealing to me, uh, more exciting to me as I hear about them because um, uh, you and I both know what a tail is. Um, for the listeners, um, when when you put a medication like, uh, for example, like in your mouth and and you digest it or an injection into your arm. Um, the body for certain types of medications um, can't get rid of all of it like an on-off switch. And what's left um, as the amount kind of dwindles in your body, um, it's, you know, kind of like a video game. You know, you're, the, the power bar goes down and you're only at like 10%. Well, that 10% might not be enough to fight the virus, but enough for the virus to maybe learn some tricks. So that's kind of what we say this... Uh, leveling off a tail effect. Um, the injection, cabotegravir, which is another medication. Um, that this is actually for the treatment. Or even uh, for PrEP, um, there, there is a tail for injecting somebody in the arm with cabotegravir. Right. And I just feel that that is going to be a big barrier to us getting really excited and behind that in clinics. An uh, implant um, where you remove it and it removes almost all the medicine from the body in one fell swoop um, makes a lot more sense to me uh, in terms of not not being worried right. you know, that the right. cat's going to be out of the bag uh, and then the virus um, is not going to learn tricks against this dwindling amount um, of medicine. But in, in the setting of prevention, though, theoretically, there's going to be no virus to begin with. 
right? I mean, because there's episodes of risk. uh, There's going to be some, right? But I mean, ideally, if it's going to be used for prevention, theoretically, the the, the number of viruses it's going to come in contact with would be minimal because obviously the the drug did its trick to prevent HIV transmission in the first place. Yeah, I guess um, the, the thing is, like, as I think about, will I ever be in a situation where an injection like cabotegravir every like two months um, is going to work. Um, if I'm giving PrEP to the the highest priority patient, their tendency to come back to clinic may not be great. Um, someone's going to have the courage to try that, but I think um, none of the studies are going to be in... Um, you know, patients with, with chaotic lives, it's going to be in patients that kind of come back on time every single time. Um, and so the, the trick is going to be how long it takes us to, um, do prep like that in the real world and kind of see how that goes. An implant like that, if, if it really, um, could last for 12 months, first of all, you know, it saves these dwindling clinics, um, from, having to have so many extra visits. Like, I can't imagine how many uh, cabotegravir visits no, no, monthly. But, uh, okay, here's where... Let me push back against uh-huh. that, all right? One is uh, the, the STIs, okay? Like, folks, like, I was going to... Mm-hmm. We're running out of time, and we'll, we'll have you back again. Sure. Uh, but the Gavin Newsom model of how uh, California is going to now be making prep over the counter. Sure. My big concern was there is a huge STI risk associated with prep uh, and uh, people need to be screened and, sure. and treated for prep. And yeah. so I would be very concerned. So they, they took care of that. They like, you can get two months worth of prep, but that's all you can get. You sure. get counseling with a pharmacist and then eventually you get moved over into a, cl- a prep prescribing clinic. So sure. That's how California is going to do it. Yeah. Um, so it's really, it's limited over the counter. It's yeah. not like over the counter to the point right. where you just go and buy condoms or, you know, whatever. Right. The second thing that I was going to say is if you put a, um, a prep or some sort of HIV preventing, uh, 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 instrumentation or, or, uh, implant, um, that's good for 12 months. I'd be super concerned that people wouldn't be coming back for syphilis uh, and chlamydia gonorrhea screens. So, well, yeah, um, I I I find yeah, well, four minutes. Sure, sure. I think people are really motivated to be healthy um, in kind of a sexual health perspective in the first place. I just think that I think um, you're optimistic. Respectfully, I think we, <laughs> respectfully. Sure. I, I just think that we erect way too many barriers, and and I think people are have competing priorities. Um, totally agree. Right. Totally um, agree. We are shelling out um, our STD uh, testing and treatment infrastructure, Louisiana. Um, uh, you know, God bless our uh, Department of Public Health colleagues, but, you know, they're going to experience slashing budgets too. Even Los Angeles County, um, which you would think would have a fully funded public health department, is um, on the verge of slashing their free STD screening um, in the county. Um, if we're not careful and we start doing that in Louisiana... Um, and- I, I haven't seen free STD screening here in... In several years, like well, we have a grant for uh, LGBTQ um, populations, right? But that grant um, run through uh, uh, the Department of Public Health right. is not going to go on forever. And if uh, CDC um, keeps having its budget slashed, you know what, what's going to happen? Right. Um, so right. I, I, we we have to uh, talk to our representatives. 
uh, yes. send them messages, uh, tell them that our communities are listening. Um, you know, we expect more. Um, we deserve more. Um, private insurance. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen what the copayment is um, for some of this screening. I mean, the copayment for gonorrhea or chlamydia testing uh, um, on your private insurance can be astronomical. Right. And don't you love it when, like, the politicians say, nobody wants Medicare for all. People love their private insurance. They don't want to be separated from their private insurance. Right. <laughs> Which always makes me laugh. We have just a couple more minutes left. Real quickly, um, uh, I was so disappointed to see that injectable. Was it cabotegravir that didn't get approved by the FDA at the, uh, at the end of the year last year? Because it was the preparation. There were some questions about the preparation techniques. Yeah. So, um I'm still just waiting for them to say that it could extend out a little bit further, like right, maybe the two three months. months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, clearly, I mean, you and I are dancing around this, but that's clearly where the where the uh, where where we're headed. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. A daily pill is tough. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. our our patients living with HIV um, are gonna push back on that. Right. But I'm just saying, in general, um, if we can give more options. Um, I think people will be happier. Yeah, I really believe that we're actually going to be getting there soon. I, I, I've pretty much, I don't, I, I don't know if you've done the same thing, but I know that for me, I've pretty much almost moved most folks that qualify onto something like a, a single tablet regimen. Mostly it's been Bictarvi. Um, and then I just said, we're going to hold you here right. until these uh, injectables are going to be coming. And I usually give a five to 10 year. Until um, we realize that all of our patients on Bictarvi are starting to have weight gain issues. Yeah, well, they, they, ta- <laughs> they talked about that. They they did talk about that and it was funny. That's actually they, they okay. We've got one minute. I know. I know. We I, have one minute left. Let me just say <laughs> what they what they basically said was tenofovir. People lost weight, and for some reason, TAF people like that 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 loss of weight is and so people are gaining back the weight that they theoretically lost lost on tenofovir. I don't know if that's necessarily true for people who start picked Harvey who weren't on a tenofovir based regimen and we're going super deep into the weeds here for you non HIV uh provider people uh but uh Chris does bring up a very good point and we got 30 seconds. Sure. So um I think my moral is um always watch uh Big Pharma. Um uh, make sure that uh you know uh the proof is in the pudding, and um, you know we we want to make sure that we have um, the best tools in the toolbox. No surprises, no surprises. Chris Garnett, you can find more information about him at uh, queereyeforthesci 